Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. From whatever standpoint one regards it, the American Civil War presents a spectacle without parallel in the annals of military history. (laughs) The vast extent of the disputed territory, the far-flung front of the lines of operation, the numerical numerical strengths of the hostile armies, the creation of which hardly drew any support from a prior organizational basis, the fabulous cost of these armies, the manner of commanding them, and the general tactical and strategic principles in accordance with which the war is being waged. All these are new in the eyes of European onlookers. That, Dominic, was Karl Marx and, confusingly, Friedrich Engels. So I should actually have done that in stereo. Writing in, <laughs> you should have done in or the in presser a, in a in, Manchester mill owner's accent, surely. Yeah, in um, in 1862, which of course second year of the American Civil War, uh, mm-hmm. it's like a kind of bloody stalemate at that point. Um, and the American Civil War, one of the great, possibly the greatest theme in in American history, but also in modern history more generally, the sense that this is the beginning of something. It's a kind of portent of so much that will happen in the late 19th and particularly in the 20th centuries. So an, an amazing theme for, for, for this podcast. It, it is. It's an epic story, Tom, um, because a lot of people would probably say it's the first truly modern war because, of course, it has the telegraph and the railroad and it has a kind of sense of total mobilization. Um, but also, I think what makes the American Civil War, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, so fascinating is that it has so many contemporary political and cultural kind of resonances. So in some ways you could argue, and we will definitely come to this later in this series, that the American civil war is, is, is as yet unresolved or the aftershocks of it are still rippling through American society. And, and from the point of view of how historians understand it, obviously that is of seismic influence because it means that, uh, you know, a settled opinion about it is pretty much impossible, particularly perhaps at the moment. Anyway. Yeah. that's true. but to get confirmation on that, I think we need an absolutely top historian of the subject. We and do. I know, Dominique, that this is, I mean, this is a subject very close to your heart. This is something that you've studied that you know a lot about. But it's very gracious of you that you have ceded the field to well, an even you know what, greater. An even greater. An even greater <laughs> specialist. So when we first started doing this podcast, however many hundred episodes ago, I'm, we've mentioned doing guests. And, and this was one of the very first people I thought of. Um, because I have known this guest for more than 20 years. He is Professor Adam Smith, the Edward Osborne Professor of Political History and Director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford. I knew him when he was little more than a boy, Tom. And I think Adam Smith is the only historian uh, with whom I pretended to be part of a couple 
to get into a bar in New York City. Do you remember that, Adam? I do remember that. Yes, it was a piano bar, I think. <laughs> it yes. was. I think I was more enthusiastic about this coupling than you were, Dominic, actually, at the time. I was. You accused me at the time. You said I was very unconvincing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, coupling, we, we, cu- coupling, that's very Love Island. Very, very of the moment. So It is. Fantastic. Yeah. What a wonderful So we were a very unconvincing couple. But Adam went on to great things at Oxford and is a historian of Lincoln, the Republican Party, the political scene during the American Civil War. So nobody better. And Tom, best of all, Adam knows an enormous amount about American cricket. Well, which is a key part of the story, if not perhaps the key story. And so Adam, <laughs> Central element, yes. <laughs> at some point, perhaps we can come on to that. But I wanted, I wanted to kick off with um, a, a question, really, that's been posed by um, a gentleman currently resident in Florida, in Mar-a-Lago, um, former President Donald Trump, who, um, when was this, Dominic? It was, a, it was a few years back, wasn't it? It was 2017, was, I think. 2017. Like that, yeah. If you think about it, why? People don't ask that question. But why was there the Civil War? Why could that one not have been worked out? So, <laughs> Tom, what's the, that's Karl Marx's voice again, isn't it? No, that was Donald Trump. That was clearly Donald Trump. Everyone would recognise that as Donald Trump. Um, so, 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 Adam, um, there you have it, the President of the United States, yeah. it's saying that people don't ask the question of why yeah. did the Civil War happen. Yeah. Um, so, as a professor at Oxford, why, why aren't you asking this question? <laughs> Yeah, no, Donald Trump. It had never, never occurred to him why it had happened. I mean, in fairness, I mean, there were, there is a lot. Of, there have been a lot of people throughout throughout American history over the last hundred and fifty years who said, um, "Surely we could have avoided that one." I mean, the, 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 there is a tradition underlying. Do you think they're that. right? Do you think they're right? Could, could no, I think they're completely it? wrong. I think this is this is an interesting example in modern history of a war that it. I mean, you know, we can all we, we can we can play some interesting alternative history games and try and imagine scenarios in which a war could have been avoided. You can imagine how a different war could have been fought, but it's pretty hard to imagine how the fundamental moral and political and economic problem of slavery could have been resolved in the United States in any way short of some kind of big breakdown. And so, in that sense, is it the case that the American Civil War is baked into the original founding? of the United States. Yeah, I think it's as it's as close to being that as as anything you'll you'll find. I mean this is not like the first world war in Europe where uh, you can imagine all kinds of different scenarios where all kinds of things had to be in place for that war to happen in the way that it did in the summer of 1914. This this war that broke out in North America in 1861 was one that had been predicted and foreordained and speculated about and people had had nightmares about it and some people had looked forward to it, right, because it was imagined correctly, as it turned out, by abolitionists, by anti-slavery activists of all stripes to be the most likely way, given the institutional structure of the United States, that you could ever bring about the end of slavery. So it had been much anticipated and then it came. So let's go back to the, to the very beginning then, Adam. I mean, whether that very beginning of 1619 or 1776 is now a, a subject of, of of intemperate debate, isn't it? But let's go back to 1776 anyway. So the, the, the United States of America are founded. Um, they declare independence from you know, the colonies, break away from, from Great Britain. Um, some of them have slavery and some of them don't. And they sort of muddle along into the beginning of the um, 19th century, don't they? But even at that point, so with you know when the when the republic is celebrating its tenth, twentieth, thirtieth birthdays, 
are people conscious then that slavery is this sort of ticking time bomb um, that's going to engulf them all? If yeah, they are. Now, in fairness, them. there are other potential ticking time bombs that people imagine are there that don't go off. So people imagine there might be a ticking time bomb, a division between Western states and Eastern states. There are other li- potential lines of division. But um, but everybody knew uh, that that slavery was probably the, the, the critical factor. I would say it's not 1776 so much as 1787 or 1789 that really matters. 1787 was when the Constitutional Convention met, and 1789 was when the Constitution came into effect. And that new Constitution, which created a stronger federal government, um, created a, a national government, really, for the, for the first time, um, could not have been put together would not have been agreed by all of the 13 uh, states as they then were, the previously 13 colonies that had broken away from the British Empire, could not have been agreed by them had it not been for the fact that there was a conscious compromise over the question of slavery. So as you say, Dominic, by by then, by the late 1780s, slavery was kind of on the way out in New England. There were moves already being made in the middle, in the mid-Atlantic states, in Pennsylvania, in New York, in New Jersey, to put slavery on the course of ultimate extinction, to use a phrase that Abraham Lincoln would later reiterate again and again and again. And in the more southernmost states, Virginia being by far the most populous, slavery seemed so central to the economy that it was much harder to imagine how slavery would end. Um, Yet even there, there was a sense that, well, maybe it's a legacy of a previous era. Maybe something will happen in the next few decades that will make it less important to us to have to hold on to it. So for the time being, it was necessary to reassure southern slaveholders that this new national government was not going to have the power to end slavery in their southern states. But at the same time, northerners and anti-slavery mid-Atlantic people were able to join this national government in the optimistic hope that maybe by about 1810, maybe by 1850, who knew, slavery would probably have disappeared in the South anyway, just as it was already disappearing in the Northeast and the, and the mid-Atlantic. So, Ad, Adam, why, why is slavery seen as a problem? I mean, that sounds an insane question from our perspective. But for people in the late 18th century, it's not at all a given that slavery as an institution is morally wrong. So in, in the context of, of the nascent United States, is it is it Christian principles that are, are causing this tension? Or is it the, the sense that there is a, a measure of hypocrisy in the kind of Jeffersonian preaching of liberty, while at the same time holding human beings in bondage? Or is it a kind of fusion of, the, of, of both or something it's, more? It's definitely both of those things, Tom. I mean, it's the famous line from Dr. Johnson, isn't there? Why do we hear the loudest yelps for freedom from the drivers of Negroes? Um, I mean, the, the answer to that question that some historians have put forward is that we hear the loudest yelps for freedom precisely because they're the, the drivers of Negroes, to, to quote Johnson. In other words, the, the presence of actual chattel slavery sharpened colonial American sense of the distinction between freedom and slavery. Um, but but yes, it was by the late 18th century, of course, there was a growing anti-slavery movement in, in Britain as well as in North America. Um, and of course, the 
the language, the Enlightenment language, which informed the Declaration of Independence, these ringing declarations of the equality of man, it, you don't need to look back on that retrospectively to see the obvious disjuncture yeah, between attention. those claims and, and the reality of, 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 prop, of the claim to property in man. But Adam, you were saying that people thought slavery might wither away. But as the 19th century progresses, I mean, it would seem to me that two things happen. One is that the world dem demand for cotton increases massively. You have the development of the cotton gin. The South is producing about a quarter of the world's cotton, I think, by 1860. So the, 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 the institution, the economic institution is making a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. It's obviously deeply embedded in yeah, the it's, cultural it's, it's, world. It's kind of well, like, isn't it's, it? like the, it's like cotton to the 19th century industrial economy is like oil is to the mid 20th century. And, and, and by 1860, raw cotton from the American South, it, it's about 90% of the imports of raw cotton into Britain, in fact, are coming from the American South. So they're like the kind of the, the Middle East uh, on this kind of oil analogy. And the, the price of cotton keeps on rising, as you say, through the 1830s and 40s and 50s, and the capacity to produce cotton in large quantities increases. And then the critical factor here that we'll, we'll talk about, which is the territorial expansion of the United States, means that there's just hundreds of thousands of acres uh, under cultivation growing cotton more than there was uh, at, the, at the beginning of the, of the, of the period. So, so, yeah, a lot of people are making a lot of money from it. And, well, that's what I wanted to ask about the territorial expansion, because actually, when you look at American, I mean, the build, the build up to all civil wars is fascinating in Spain, in Yugoslavia, in America, as much as anywhere. Um, there's an awful lot of violence in the build up to the American Civil War. There's paramilitary violence, there's assassinations and so on. But in particular, I mean, there's, there's violence that the Americans themselves are, are, are sort of dealing out to others. So most famously, I suppose, Mexico. So the Mexican-American War, they take Texas, or they absorb Texas, um, and then they defeat Mexico 1846 to 48. And is that, to me, I would say, and now maybe I'm completely wrong because it's years since I really thought about this, but to me that, that feels like one of the absolute triggers for what comes because the acquisition of so much territory from Mexico. Totally, and that, that war which was probably the most successful war of territorial expansion in, in modern history, very very uh, small number of Americans were killed and yet they had this huge expansion of territory, all of Southern California, New Mexico, Arizona, um, all of that big South uh, West portion of the United States came into the United States after the defeat of Mexico. And the problem then was should slavery be legal or illegal in those territories? It had been illegal in Mexico um, so the question is whether you push slavery into this new area. And, and the people really pushing this territorial war of expansion were slaveholders, and they wanted that southwestern territory in order to grow more cotton, take more enslaved people there. But so essentially, just to be clear, because this is a really dumb question, but slavery, slavery is geographically determined because cotton is geographically determined. It's, it's determined by the climate. Is that essentially why it's so much more fundamental to the southern economy than, than it ever was to the northern? Yes, it's very it becomes very tied with cotton. I get, in, in, the, in the 18th century, it wasn't so. And that's, you know, there were enslaved people in Boston townhouses. And, uh, but in the end, the reason why slavery became a southern institution was, because, was overwhelmingly because of cotton. Also, also tobacco and, and, and rice and, and sugar 
but overwhelm, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly cotton. And so, the, and, but that fact, though, Tom, also meant that there were some people in the United States in the long, in the decades running up to the Civil War, who said, "Well, because that's true, because there is that association between cotton." And slavery, we don't need to worry about this too much because slavery can never become a national institution. Right, it can never. It's unlikely yeah. ever to take hold critically in the in the in the state of in 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 uh, in in Kansas, for example. <laughs> right, right, right. Because but, but, Kansas doesn't appear to have the appropriate climate for cotton cultivation. So why worry then about whether we ban slavery from the new state of Kansas when it was opened up? But it's it's that that determines why it's north and south and not, yes. say, east and west or yes. you know, yes. any other configuration. And that yes. is why the acquisition of states along that kind of border zone become particular flashpoints. Yes, yes. But, but Adam, so, so for people who, who, who are new to this, I, I suppose the question is, okay, they disagree about slavery. You know, I mean, very, very simplistically, north and south disagree about slavery. But there's more to the issue than that, isn't there? Because it's so incendiary. Because in the North, they have this idea of a conspiracy, a slave power that is the, the very existence of slavery is, is undermining the United States itself. In the South, um, you know, there, there is this sort of the, the institution of keeping, you know, so many people enslaved has bred a kind of a weird kind of paranoia, hasn't it? And a sort yeah. of there's a there's a violence to the debate which yeah. to people outside it might seem a bit odd because you might say well why don't they just let if they want to have slaves let them have slaves why do you think it becomes so embittered now is that i mean to pick one of that well i was about to say one of tom's favorite themes undoubtedly tom's favorite theme is that because this is ultimately a religious debate to some degree or it's infused with religiosity it is re- infused with i mean everything in the 19th century is infused with religiosity it's it's in, it, but it's also infused with the question of what America is and who Americans are and what kind of this republic this is going to be, and in the end, the question is whether for Northerners, for people who live in states where slavery is illegal, the question is whether the institution of slavery in the South is corrupting the republic as a whole and in the end, therefore, infringing their freedom as white American citizens. And it's when it gets to that moment, when Northerners in Massachusetts or Illinois think that the demands being made by Southern slaveholders are such that their own freedoms are being abridged. That's the point where it becomes really, really dangerous and when war, I think, becomes uh, unavoidable. I mean, the thing about slavery is you can say slavery was the cause of the American Civil War, right? And that is to say, you know, everything and nothing. I mean, it, it, the, the question is, how was slavery, how did slavery come to create the war? Um, and when you, when you talk, you know, when you talk to Americans who deny that slavery was the cause of the war, you know, that war is not about slavery. And you ask, you ask people, I mean, I vividly remember one of the times when I was in the States in the, back, in the, back in the 90s and I took a, took a tour around one of those plantation houses in South Carolina and the crinoline lady showing us round, and after she'd shown us, she had shown us the slave quarters and so on, and she was telling us the dates of all the pictures and the furniture in the room. And and I was there with a with a group of Americans in baseball caps. And at one point, the you know the crinoline lady said, "No, that war is not about slavery." And 
question then is, you know, what what was what was the war about if it wasn't about slavery? What she would have said was that war was about states' rights. But of course, you know, the states' rights that mattered to Southerners were their right to protect slavery. And when it became necessary for Southern slaveholders in the run up to the Civil War to use the national government in order to for- enforce the principle of property and man, then they had no hesitation in using the national governments. The 1850 Fugitive Slave Act was a big expansion of federal power. Uh, and it was in, in the aftermath of that, it was northern states who were talking about states' rights in order to resist the encroachment of the federal government who were reaching in to northern free state communities and 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 uh, arresting and dragging away in chains fugitive slaves or people who slaveholders claimed had been fugitives from slavery without recourse to local juries or local police forces or local courts. That was a massive expansion of federal power and it was supported it was necessary for slaveholders to demand it so it all comes back to slavery one way or another but as you say dominic it's it's completely interlaced with all these basic questions about republican freedom as northerners and southerners uh, understood those things and in the north they're presumed you know they're not surrounded by slaves so uh, how how are they kind of being radicalized so Lincoln, yeah. Lincoln is supposed to have met um, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, isn't he? And said, you're the little lady who made such <laughs> made a big, big war, war or something, <laughs> made such a big war with um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. Was, are, are, are novels like Uncle Tom's Cabin, Frederick Douglass's kind of speeches, all this kind of thing, is this having an effect or is it just, is it more just a kind of sense of what they're reading the newspapers, what people are saying? How is this process of radicalization happening? So it clearly does have an effect. I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin was a publishing sensation. And what Uncle Tom's Cabin does is to put into the homes of middle-class, mid-Victorian, northeastern Americans, confront them with the reality of a system of enslavement that breaks up families that violates women yes. in every sense. So violates Christian principles violates in the Victorian sense. Exactly. Yep. And that gets people. And it, and it's one of the reasons why women are so important in the anti-slavery movement. Um, Frederick Douglass, this incredibly articulate, amazing baritone voice, incredibly effective speaker, good writer, born into slavery, escaped from slavery in Maryland, he becomes this very visible spokesman for the possibility that, well, you know what, black people are not clearly not born, somehow born innately into slavery, and so confronts white northerners with that, with that reality. But in the end, I don't think, I mean, that those kinds of anti-slavery arguments would not have driven the United States to war, I don't think, were it not for what people could see and experience in their own streets and their own communities in the North. As a consequence, I think the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which I just mentioned, is probably the single most important piece of legislation in helping to trigger the American Civil War. I mean, there's a lot of competition there. There's also the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and there are other things we could talk about. But for the sake of, for the sake of argument, I, I put my money on the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. And that's because you can see black, free black men and women 
being physically dragged away in front yeah. of your eyes. Yeah. And there's a famous, perhaps the most notorious case was that of Anthony Burns in Boston in 1854, where this guy who was in fact a, a fugitive slave who'd been living in and working in Brattle Street for a few months was arrested by federal forces and taken, marched in chains to the port of Boston and the bells of Boston tolled as he was forced onto a federal ship and taken back down south. And this, of course, in the cradle of the revolution, this very visible violation of liberty. And so what happened to him? It was a good news story for, for Anthony Burns. He, he, was, he was sold back to northerners, to anti-slavery people who, who effectively rescued him, and he, he died in, in 1862. Oh, well, that's, that's, that ended better than it could have done. So Adam, there, there were many others for whom the story did not end so yeah. well, of course. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the South. So the North is becoming radicalized, I suppose, by, by the Fugitive Slave Act and by pamphlets and books and speeches and so on. But am I right in thinking the South is also becoming radicalized in a way? I, I sort of get a sense, and maybe I'm completely misremembering this, that the, the, the Southerners' attitude to slavery a generation or two earlier had been as a, that it was a kind of regrettable but necessary e evil. Mm -hmm. um, whereas there's a sense, isn't there, that, they, that they're absolutely obsessed with slavery in the 1850s, and they see it as a positive good, as a sign of their own nobility and their tradition and their... Yeah. These were all these wonderful things that have been lost in the cruel, mechanistic, capitalistic North. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that that transition happens around the late 1820s or early 1830s. And so it happens in line with the rise of ab radical abolitionist movements in the North. It's the classic way in which polarization happens and that each is reacting to the other. And whereas in the late 1820s, it's still possible in the Virginia state legislature, for example, to debate a gradual emancipation bill, by the end of the 1830s, that is completely inconceivable. There's no space in the South by the end of the 1830s for any white person or anybody questioning the moral uh, rectitude of slavery. But Adam, presumably, I mean, what proportion of people in the South actually are profiting from slavery? In, a, in the direct sense of owning uh, enslaved people it's only about a quarter um so there is a is a big and interesting question here about why the majority of white southerners who don't themselves directly benefit from the ownership of slaves nevertheless support the slave system which so far as we can tell most of them uh, most of them did and are willing to die for it in due course and in the end they're willing to die for it, or at least willing to die for a society which has slavery rather than submit to yankee the Yankee yoke, as they would as they would see it, and you know, an, an obvious answer is that the existence of slavery creates a racial caste system. And so, if you are a poor, propertyless white man, you at least know that you can never be formally enslaved, and so that gives you a kind of status on the basis of your skin color, which you wouldn't have in a non-slave-based society. Um, that. There are, there, I mean, there are plenty of places in the South where that doesn't really seem to hold true. And in parts of the South where there aren't very many enslaved people because there aren't many black people up country, North Carolina and so on. Um, those are not coincidentally the parts of the South which are least enthusiastic about fighting for the Confederacy and where desertion during the American Civil War is at its highest rates. And there were a couple of quite high profile white Southerners in the late 1850s, the most 
prominent being Hinton Rowe and Helper, who wrote a book saying the real problem with slavery is what it does to poor white people. And this was taken up, and he was then hounded out of the South, of course, but this book was taken up by northern anti-slavery people with, with great glee because it made their case for them exactly. The problem with slavery is what it does not just if at all, in some cases, to enslave people, what it does to everybody else, the way it corrupts the owners of slaves and the way it impoverishes those who don't own slaves. So you can be an abolitionist in the North and still be massively racist? Definitely. You know, you, you said a, um, a few minutes ago, Tom, that you Northerners were growing up without slavery around them. Many of them were also growing up without black people around them. They were living, their, their actual experience was that they were living in a, a kind of lily white, whites, white man's republic. And that, you know, the gender and the race bit of that is important. And Abraham Lincoln is, is a good example. I mean, in the state of Illinois, where he uh, moves as a kind of teenager and builds his career and his political career in the end, uh, Illinois uh, has anti-black laws on the on the, on the book. So it's actually illegal for black people to move to Illinois. Slavery is illegal in Illinois, but it, as it were, so are black people. I mean, there is nevertheless a black community in Illinois, but it's very small. So that raises the issue about colonization, Adam, which is absolutely fascinating, probably a lot of people don't know about, which is that, I mean, Lincoln is a good example. We'll come to Lincoln more properly after the break. But Lincoln is a good example, isn't he, of, of somebody who hates slavery wants to see it extirpated, but also basically in an ideal world would like to see huge numbers of African-Americans, perhaps almost all or indeed all African-Americans physically moved to Africa. Yeah. Yes. The, and the American Colonization Society, which Abraham Lincoln is a supporter of, that, that is their stated aim to end slavery by removing black people from America. And at various points, that the American Colonization Society has the support of the political establishment, as it were, the, the multiple layers, different types of the political establishment, pretty much everywhere outside of, of, of the Deep South through the 1810s and 20s and, and 30s. I mean, you talk about, I mean, Thomas Jefferson is interesting in this respect as well. I mean, Jefferson, um, the author of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, also himself a slaveholder, um, deeply conflicted you know aware of the horrible bind that slavery puts people like him in and of course having a relationship uh, with one at least one of his uh, enslaved uh, women Sally Hemings and having children by her uh, and so has this deeply complex and ambivalent attitude to slavery with the result that Jefferson himself by the time of the American Civil War white southerners are quite ambivalent about Jefferson he's a really problematic figure for them the glittering generalities as they call it of the declaration of independence which create these problems for people who by the 1860s need to rely on the idea that there is a cast iron difference between black people and white people because Jeff, Jefferson, they had that kind of famous um, phrase about how he trembled for his country, um, reflecting that that God is just and that you know justice will be visited on it, which of course is is essentially what happens. Um, yes. I think we should take a break at this point. When we come back, let's look at Abraham Lincoln, and then let's look at the the build up to war. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We're looking at 
the American Civil War, and more specifically in this first episode, the causes of the American Civil War. Um, and in the first half, uh, Adam, we were talking about Lincoln. He's kind of popped up every so often, as you might expect. But we haven't really focused in on, on who he is and why he becomes a significant player in the run-up to the Civil War. So just a bit of background on Lincoln. I, I know this is absolutely your mastermind subject. So if you could bear to just kind of compress it, who is Lincoln? What, where is he coming from? What motivates him? Why is he important? Well, he grew up on the frontier. He was born in 1809 in Kentucky, moved with his family to Indiana, moved on again eventually to Illinois. Um, he, his family were poor, about pretty much about as poor as you could get as a white family on the frontier. He had very little formal education. He learned to read and write. He was estranged from his father uh, at some point as a, as, a, as a teenager and moved into a small community in Illinois kind of pretty much on his own and had to kind of build his own uh, life, aided by the fact that he was very tall and strong and so could win physical fights. Um, served briefly in the in the in the in the Black Hawk War, a war against Native Americans. Didn't really fight, just fought mosquitoes by his own account. But that kind of elevated him in his own community because he was elected uh, as an officer by his men. And then found his way into the Illinois state legislature. He was, I mean, everybody who met Lincoln in those early years through the 1820s and 30s and 40s regarded him as fascinating and odd. I mean, in a hard drinking world, he was a teetotaler. Um, in a highly religious world, his um, own faith was ambivalent and shifting. And we can talk more about that, <laughs> but he's it, 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 definitely Christian-ish. Oh, certainly Christian-ish. I mean, he grew up, you know, he grew up in a kind of Baptist community, an anti-slavery Baptist community, and he mostly, although not always, attended uh, church. I mean, this this was a religious world, but he also wrote tracts questioning the existence of God at various points, the various moments when he was accused of infidelity, um, which was a political liability for him. I think he had a kind of Old Testament providentialism. I mean, he believed in an all-controlling fate. And certainly by the time of the Civil War, he was deeply conscious of his own humility in the face of an all-controlling providence. But he rarely talked about Christ. And a fate like the one that Jefferson was talking about just before the break, one that judges sin. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, I think his 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 religious views were quite different from Jefferson, who was a product of the kind of deism of the 1770s and 1780s. But but he he had a deep consciousness of sin. And that came out that comes out most obviously in his extraordinary second inaugural address at the very end of his life in 1865, in which he talks about the sin of uh, of slavery and the punishment being inflicted on both north and south by god for the 200 years in, of, of of bondage in america but but adam when you get to the 1850s i mean from even in the early 1850s let's say lincoln is surely at that point an exceedingly implausible person to become president of the united states isn't he i mean he's yeah, a nobody weak... nobody would have heard of it. i mean he was a one-term congressman yes yeah, so to get back to lincoln uh, lincoln in his life dominic he he was a one-term congressman uh from illinois he was actually there in congress uh able to 
oppose the Mexican war, but uh, he introduced resolutions demanding that uh, the the spot on American soil in which the Mexicans had allegedly invaded be revealed by the president, knowing that there was no such spot. So if somehow Lincoln had kind of disappeared from the historical record in 1850, <laughs> he might be remembered, if at all, as kind of spotty Lincoln, the man who who raised that question in Congress in the face of an overwhelming pro-war majority. Um, he did a few things in in, Illinois, in the Illinois State Legislature. He was always in a minority opposing. I mean, there was a there was a there was a resolution opposing the formation of abolitionist societies in Illinois, which passed overwhelmingly. And Lincoln was one of the minority of people who opposed that um, resolution. So where there was in the odd occasion, the opportunity to stand up against slavery, Lincoln generally did so. But it wasn't at the center of his political project. At the center of his political project up through the early 1850s was probably banking. I mean, that oh was God. the thing that That's really mattered to him because he wanted to bring credit. He was he, he was a Whig. He was a Whig in a state that was the other thing. Was, I mean, he was a teetotaler in a hard drinking state. He was a Whig in a democratic state. And, and so he wanted economic development. He wanted to increase the availability of credit so that people could start small businesses. And he wanted to imagine an economically diverse Illinois. That was the thing that really got him out of bed in the morning. <laughs> for, for, for people not familiar with the intricacies of uh, American party politics in the 19th century. Are there century, any people like that? Well, including me. Um, the, the system such as we recognize it now with Democrats and Republicans at this point does not exist. So it's, de- it's Democrats and Whigs. And is that essentially what the state of play is? Yeah, the, the, the Whig Party kind of, the Democratic Party was really the world's first mass political party that emerged really in support of Andrew Jackson, this great populist president who ran for office first in 1824 and was elected in 1828 and re-elected in 1832. And the, the Whigs were the opponents to the Jacksonian Democrats. They were never really very successful, to be honest, as a national political party. <laughs> um, but insofar as there was a, a functioning two-party system in the 1830s and 40s, it was Democrats versus Whigs. The Whig Party ran its last national candidate in the 1852 presidential election, uh, trying to repeat the trick of nominating a famous general uh, from the Mexican War and hoping that he got elected despite the fact that he was a Whig. They failed in 1852 and were never able again to run a presidential candidate. And the, the, the collapse of the Whig Party as a, as a national, like the Democrats, a national political party which had the support of slaveholders in the South and non-slaveholders in the North, the collapse of the Whig Party created the political space for the rise of the Republican Party in the 1850s. The Republican Party being a northern anti-slavery party. We can talk about exactly how anti-slavery it was and what form its anti-slavery politics took, but it was a northern anti-slavery party. And that was the party that Lincoln, as many other Whigs did as well, Lincoln joined in the mid-1850s and which eventually carried him into national power as the first Republican president elected in 1860. So, so that's a, another turn of the ratchet, if that's the right metaphor, isn't it, towards towards conflict? Because the Republican yes. Party is an avowedly anti-slavery party. And I guess to some extent, maybe this is too simplistic, is, is perceived as an anti-Southern party. I mean, there are no yes. Southern Republicans, right? 
No, I mean, the, the, the Lincoln gets a handful of votes in Kentucky, a handful in in Virginia, but essentially that's absolutely right. But basically a brave man if you come out as a Republican. You're a very brave man if you come out as a Republican in those places, definitely, yes. And and this is why, you know, we've got to talk about electoral systems. I mean, you know, we know that elections matter, but the rules of the game matter, electoral systems matter. So the Republican Party is a plausible party despite only even attempting to get votes in the North, because the electoral college system for electing the president means that they know as early as 1856, when they try for the first time, they fail to elect their candidate in 1856, but they can elect Lincoln in 1860, even though nationally Lincoln gets less than 40% of the popular vote. But because he wins a, a majority, or at least a plurality, in most cases a majority, of the vote in the non-slaveholding northern states, that gives him, and if you win a state, you get all of the electoral college votes, with the interesting exception of New Jersey at that time, but leaving that aside, <laughs> you get all of the electoral college votes from those states. And so he won a big majority in the electoral college in 1860, despite winning only a small minority of the, of the national popular vote. Everybody knew that. Without that, with a different electoral system for president, the Republican Party would not have been a viable organization but it was so before we get to that point adam i mean obviously lincoln's election is the, is the is the trigger if i mean i've got my metaphors are all over the shop i've had a ratchet i've got a trigger i've got i've mm. got basically a toolbox it's not going well um no yeah, no i've got a, i've got a whole panoply of of metaphors tom i think is the is the truth of it a rising fever um yeah I, i've got a horrendous cold so yes. this is basically like a fever dream talking to adam and tom <laughs> um but the the temperature has been rising year on year, hasn't it? And let's, I mean, there's Kansas, there's um, the Dred Scott case, and there's John Brown. So let's do Kansas first. So so basically, this is sort of paramilitary. It's, it's kind of a civil war before the Civil War, isn't it, within yeah. the state of Kansas? So there was a civil war in Kansas before there was a civil war everywhere else, because Kansas was the latest place in which Congress had to make a decision about whether slavery should exist or not. So a bill came before Congress at the very end of 1853 to organize Kansas as the United States Territory. And everybody had thought up until then that the status of slavery in this part of North America would never be an issue because Congress had previously decided in what was called the Missouri Compromise that all future land north of the 36 degrees 30 parallel would be free territory and slavery would be allowed south of it now this new proposed united states territory which would later become a state was north of that line so slavery shouldn't exist and yet when the bill was brought forward introduced into the senate it was introduced with a brand new provision that after all the territorial legislature of this new territory would determine for itself whether or not slavery existed for uh, Anti-slavery Northerners, this was an extraordinary betrayal. I mean, this, this was upending what they had thought was for a generation, for more than 30 years, had been the settled policy. And it looked like an incredible act of aggression by the slave power, as they, as they called it. The guy who introduced the bill, Stephen Douglas, Democratic senator from Illinois, long-term sparring partner of Abraham Lincoln. He himself was from a northern state, from a non-slave holding state in Illinois. He said, look, this is no big deal. 
Slavery probably isn't going to go into Kansas anyway. Who's going to want to take slaves into Kansas? You're never going to be able to really grow cotton there successfully. This is just a pragmatic way of making sure this bill passes. You know, my my southern colleagues really want this. Let's give it to them. Slavery isn't going to exist in Kansas anyway, so let's all, all just calm down about it. And insofar as this is a positive resolution of the question of slavery, what can be more American? It's popular sovereignty in action. Just let people decide. Who can so they, possibly yeah, object they, to that? They choose, the people of Kansas choose freely for themselves. Yeah. Slavery or not slavery. But then what happened, Dominic, was that people piled in with guns <laughs> to fight it out on the ground. Right. So this is bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas. Yeah. Right. And it was horrible. And, and one of the people who, who went there to fight for the free state cause was this guy, John Brown, an abolitionist who'd been radicalized 15 years earlier and who was committed one of the many atrocities that were committed in 1850s Kansas um, and went on from there to lead in 1859 an attempted insurrection of enslaved people in Virginia. So, so jo- yeah, John Brown, I mean, he's stereotypically, you know, you see him, he's this incredibly forbidding looking bloke with a colossal beard, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, um, old, pro- old Testament prophet type. Who lies old Testament. in his grave. Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. Old Testament prophet with gun. Um, but I mean, how should, is he, is he a terrorist or is he a freedom fighter? Cause he's fighting on behalf of the slaves, but as you say, he's, he's carried out atrocities in Kansas. He's launched, he launches this rebellion, doesn't he? At Harper's Ferry, Virginia, yeah. 1859. So Which it's gets year- suppressed by, um, a very distinguished U S uh, military man called Robert E. Lee. Yes. He's right? a Colonel at the time. Yes. Who, who, that's right. The, well, is he a terrorist or a freedom fighter? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's you could ask that about most um, groups most people who, in history. who try to use violence uh, to achieve ends, right? I mean, he believes that he has been appointed by God to rid the United States of the sin of slavery and that any means will justify that end. Yeah. But isn't also the key, the key thing about Brown and why he has such an impact is that he doesn't die when Lee and his men come and recapture the whatever it is the um the arsenal uh, the arsenal yeah. that he's captured he he gets taken prisoner and so he has his time in the dock yeah and because he's an old testament kind of guy you put an old testament kind of guy in the dock and he really lets rip yeah the biblical language yeah and then he is and then he is sentenced to death and he's hung and on the day of his hanging the bells toll once again in Boston and in those stalwart redoubts of New England, um, anti-slavery, the anti-slavery heartlands and in the the, the Unitarian congregations and the Congregationalist congregations meet together to mourn the death of someone who they certainly regard as a freedom fighter. And that his soul is marching on. Yeah. His soul is marching on. But that absolutely inflames the South, doesn't it? Because as far as they see it, the Northerners are in bed with this, as they would say, yeah. terrorist. Yeah. And yeah. do you think at that point, so in 18, so there's been a couple of other things, haven't there? Because there's been, there's been violence in the Senate. Yeah. Um, a, a representative, Preston Brooks, has, caned, a, has, a, has attacked, yeah, with a cane, a bloke called <laughs> Charles, yeah. Charles Sumner, isn't it, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Charles um, Sumner, who was a Massachusetts senator, um, anti-slavery senator. Yeah. He gets attacked with a, 
with a cane and, and almost killed. I mean, he's he's unconscious and lying on the on the floor with blood seeping out of his skull. And and this guy Preston Brooks wow. keeps on smashing smashing his his stick into the back of his head. So a real sense that uh, the centre is not holding. No. That violence is kind of lapping at the feet of the uh, of the republic, and then you have Lincoln's election. And does the combination of all of, of all this mean that uh, it, essentially by this point there is no stopping it? The the war is inevitable. It's just a matter of time. I th- I think that when Lincoln is elected, I think that's probably true. That by this point, some kind of confrontation is inevitable. Whether it's the war that actually happened is a, is a different question. Of course, there are all different kinds of. Uh, scenarios even once secession has happened and once the the military has been engaged but that some kind of breakdown is going to happen i think i think that's right and and i think all of this is important to remembering that i mean i see i mean i think there, there are many historians who who disagree with me on on this but i see lincoln as in some ways fundamentally quite a conservative figure for the small c i mean he is he is deeply anti-slavery he's deeply concerned about the institutions and preserving the republic and he sees, as do millions of other Northerners, that slavery leads to lawlessness and violence. That's how he sees it. And he sees the slave power making these authoritarian grabs for national power, passing the Fugitive Slave Act. And then, Dominic, the thing you, you, you just mentioned in passing, the, the Dred Scott decision. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court in 1857 um, rules in this uh, case of a, of a of an enslaved person who sues for his freedom on the grounds that his owner took him into a uh, free territory and so therefore he should have been freed and the and the and the supreme court basically says um no no you 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 can't be freed just because you're in a free territory because that would be to violate the fifth amendment rights of your owner in other words, slavery is is property, and you can't take someone's property away without due process of law. And that implies, doesn't it, that slavery can never be got rid of? Is that exactly. right? Yeah. And 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 what basis then can a state like Massachusetts uh, ban slavery if it's a yeah. constitutional right? If 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 slavery is property, then you cannot be deprived of your property as a United States citizen. Then the, you know the next, as Lincoln called it, the next Dred Scott decision may well say that a slaveholder can go into Massachusetts and legally hold his slaves there and potentially buy and sell slaves there. Who knows? I mean, thin end of the wedge. The implication of that is that, you know, and this goes back to where we began with this conversation, that the problem is basically within the Constitution itself. It's within the the very foundational documents of the American Republic. Yeah. And that obviously makes it very difficult to, to sort out. Yeah. So could, could we, I think that we have, I mean, this has been an absolute tour de force looking at the, the build-up to the war. Adam, could you just take us from Lincoln's election to when the first shots are fired and then tomorrow we'll look at the opening stages of the war? Yeah, so Lincoln was elected in November uh, 1860 and immediately the state of South Carolina, which is always in the vanguard of Southern radicalism, immediately the state of South Carolina started making preparations to secede from the Union, to leave the United States. And they did that. By December, they'd already done that. And they sent out emissaries to other slaveholding southern states to encourage them to do likewise. By the time Lincoln was inaugurated in March 1861, seven slaveholding states had left the Union. And that's illegal? 
Well, we well, should come to that in the so next we'll episode. We'll come to that in the next episode. Yeah. We can we can I mean yes. They certainly they certainly thought it was a perfectly legitimate thing to do. They had voluntarily entered into this union just as Britain voluntarily entered into the European Union and they were voluntarily getting out of it because the terms of uh, of the deal had apparently changed. They, they were taking back control, Adam. They, <laughs> they were taking back control, and they said this very explicitly in their in their the manifestos, as it were, their documents they issued to explain uh, secession. So by the time Lincoln became president, he had this. It was a kind of Cold War uh, standoff. Um, there were these seven states that by then had formed a, an independent confederacy had put people on ships, sending them over to Paris and to London to demand, to request diplomatic recognition from Europe. They had adopted a new flag. Uh, They had written a new constitution, which was unnervingly similar in every respect to the United States Constitution, (laughs) except for the fact that it explicitly said that slavery was allowed. It also gave the president a six-year term, interestingly, and a line-item veto, but that's too geeky, I think, possibly for this podcast. It was essentially the same. And they revered Washington and they said, we are basically the continuity USA. Um, The United States has betrayed its founding principles. It set up this um, government, which is not upholding our property rights. We haven't haven't left the United States. We haven't left the United States. The United States has left us. Exactly. And new capital at Richmond, Virginia? Yeah. uh, Well, not at that time. Uh, At at that time, they were in Montgomery, Alabama. But then that was only seven states uh, seceded at that point. Then what happens is there's a question, well, what about federal property? So there were, you know, mints and lots of military installations and dozens of them all across the South. Most of them were taken over by the states as they seceded. But there were a couple for which that was rather harder. And one of them was Fort Sumter, which is on an island in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. There's a very small garrison uh, in that island. And the South Carolinians demanded its surrender. And the question is, should the new Lincoln administration allow this surrender? Well, no, of course, they're not going to do that. What can they do instead? Maybe they send reinforcements. Maybe they just resupply it because it can't be resupplied directly from Charleston anymore. So you send a ship to keep the garrison going for a bit longer. But before you could do that, the South Carolinians open fire. So they literally open fire on the American flag. The Stars and Stripes was flying over Fort Sumter. Um, they forced the surrender of Fort Sumter. And in response to that, Lincoln called for troops. He called for volunteers from all of the states. He sent he sent to the governor of Virginia, to the governor of Kentucky, to slaveholding states. He said there's an insurrection going on. Um, and as commander in chief, he, d- he called up um, volunteers. In response to that, then the upper South states, including the most important and the most populous, the most economically valuable one of Virginia, had to choose. Was it going to send troops to suppress this rebellion in South Carolina or was it going to stand alongside its southern brethren? Well, it chose the latter. And so Virginia seceded as well. And the Confederate capital was then moved to Richmond, which, of course, is only about 90 miles due south of Washington, D.C. Well, Adam, on that bombshell. That literal bombshell. Literal bombshell. Um, Thanks so much for that. Uh, I think we will take a break here. In the next episode, we will look at the opening of the war. So please join us then for um, this most extraordinary of stories. Our thanks to Adam. Thanks to you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.